Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 89 of Drinks with Tony. First off, this is a whole tape episode, which means I recorded it in December 2019 in San Francisco. That means we recorded in person. Oh man, that feels like a decade ago. Back in the days when you could sneeze at a cafe and they would say, bless you, instead of run. So we'll air that Danny Plotnick interview in a minute. First off, there was a writing biz question. And the question is from Crystal in Los Angeles. If you have writing business questions, general questions about writing, uh, email Duchesne at gmail.com. That's Duchesne at gmail.com. Okay, let me open up the question here. I'm submitting to a couple of screenplay competitions that require a resume. Above the job skills and job history, there's a place for an introduction. How do I write a quick, efficient introduction on my resume? What are they looking for? Are they wanting to understand my writing style or my life experience? Any help is appreciated. Oh, wise one. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, the screenplay should show your writing style. So that is the most important thing. Um, for the introduction, make it short, fast, and sweet. Then make it even shorter. Condense, condense. And then when you think you got it, make even more cuts and then uh, submit it. But the main thing is from page one, they need to be hooked on your screenplay and can't stop reading. That's the most important thing. Your work should speak absolutely for itself and it should scare them not to take it and run with it. Put it in development, give you money. All right. Uh, big thanks to everyone who joined my free creative writing online workshop on Zoom presented by the Los Angeles Public Library last week. The next free online workshop is July 1st. Go to lapl.org. That's lapl.org and find the registration in the events section for July 1st. And my online screening writing, screenwriting workshop starts June 24th at UCLA, UCLA Extension. Go to ucla.edu and search for Duchesne. There are still a few open spots, so uh, let's dive into this summer screenwriting quarter fantastico. That's uclaextension.edu. Search for Duchesne. And now, showtime in your ear. Hi, I'm Danny Plotnick, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. All right. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. Yeah, nah, it's fine. We can fuck it up. Tyson will kick my ass on Tyson. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Danny Plotnick. He's the author of Super 8, an illustrated history. He's been making Super 8 films since the mid-1980s. His films have been aired on MTV, the Independent Film Channel, and screamed at a t screened at a ton of film festivals and at the Museum of Modern Art. And his first film, Skate Witches, has been viewed about a half a million times on YouTube. He's the director of film studies at University of San Francisco. If that doesn't feel like a mouthful, there's even more that I'm leaving out. Danny, hi. Hey, Tony. How's it going? Well, great now that I'm seeing you. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Woohoo! It's great to see you again. I know. It's, uh, well, before we actually met, I was a fan of yours because I remember seeing some, going to some film festivals and seeing your films and knowing you were the Super 8 guy at Film Arts Foundation and I wanted to take your classes. I ended up taking a couple others. So you've always been the Super 8 guy to me. Now you're Danny, too. So. That's right. <laughs> I'm more than just the Super 8 guy. Yeah. Though this year it's all Super 8 all the time. Yeah, yeah. What, um, what was it about get putting this book together? When did you start thinking about 
putting the project together? You know, the book's been in the works for really about five years at this point. And I, I you know, I think for me, Super 8, between 85 and 2000, I made 15 to 20 Super 8 films, depending on how you did the math, taught you know, dozens of Super 8 film classes. So it's just always a format that's meant a lot to me. And I, you know, I just really wanted to write something and it occurred to me, though there have been books about Super 8 out there, some really great books, none of them were the book that I would want to see or, you know, or would include all the artists that I would want to see. And so I decided to just sit down and start writing and give it a stab and go from there, yeah. So, um, what was it? What was the Super 8? When did you hit the Super 8 bug? And, and do you remember when you had your like, first Super 8 camera and you're like, okay, this is something? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I distinctly remember all of that, but Super 8, there was never a thing where I'm like, all right, Super 8, let's go. And, you know, in the book I talk about, in the first college class I took when I decided I wanted to start making films, they just put a Super 8 camera into our hands. And I didn't know the difference between Super 8 or 16 or 35. Like, I don't think anyone had ever talked about that to me. And, you know, when I decided I wanted to, you know, make films, like in the mid 80s, I was also from the Midwest, no connection to the film industry. I didn't know how you went about being a filmmaker. Like, that wasn't anything anyone really talked about, you know, at all. Um, and so I just took this class and that was the camera. So that's why I started using it. And the, the, the school had no 16 millimeter equipment. So that, it just wasn't an option. Like I just went with the thing that was in front of me. But I think that is how a lot of people who came of age in the 70s or 80s started making movies. You just went with what was available and what was readily at hand, and that was Super 8. And because Super 8 was so inexpensive, a lot of people just stuck with it. Because once you figured out what was what, well, all of a sudden, 16 millimeter, that cost an absolute shit ton, you know? And so, I mean, I remember, you know, I think the film I made, actually, there's a film I made before Skate Witches, Maybe there's two films I made before. Wait, I got it wrong in the intro. Damn it! <laughs> you got it wrong. I was maybe going to correct you off the bat, but you know, they, no, no. I me would have. No, it's fine. You got, what you got to do is you kind of, kind of. It's it's like a relationship. You just got, you you take note of it and you <laughs> right. wait for later to like pull it out of your pocket. That's right to lord it over someone. <laughs> but the first film I made was you know a three and a half minute film, and it cost I think 180 bucks, and I remember being freaked out. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make another film. That's so expensive. And, you know, I was hanging out with friends who were in bands and, you know, whatever. They were, you'd write a song, you'd write another song. You'd put out a 45, you'd put out another 45. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm a filmmaker. I made a film, but I need to make another one. But holy cow, how am I going to do that? $180. I can't like, I can't make three of those a year. I can't make two of those a year. And, um, you know, so I started, I started figuring out ways to keep the cost down even more, but that's why I that's why I ultimately stuck with Super 8 once I figured out there was this thing called 16 but it was just rarefied air I couldn't you know the, these films I would you know would go on to make for three or four hundred dollars would have been costing a thousand or two thousand dollars in 16 and that wasn't on uh, that wasn't a possibility so what was it your, your friends were in punk bands and you picked up the camera 
What was it about documenting life in film? What, what, was, what was the spark for that? You know, I, it's, it's the old thing. You just kind of want to make stories that speak to you. And for me, that was kind of loud, aggro, aggressive, you know, people yelling at each other. Like, that seemed like a great idea. And so I think for me, more than documenting what a lot of my friends were doing, it was like capturing the same spirit that a lot of those people who were in kind of punk bands, you know, it, it was sort of capturing that energy. I mean, interestingly, Skate Witches is the one film that starts heading into that kind of territory of a very 80s kind of look and, you know, person, which is, of course, I think, you know, it has this internet following. And, and I mean, you'd have to ask the people who follow it as to why they like it. But I think part of it is, oh, you're seeing real people from the 80s in the clothing that they own. It's not particularly art directed. I mean, I guess it is, right? One of the skate witches is wearing my leather jacket because she didn't have one and she needed one, you know, but it's not like we went shopping to figure out how to dress them to look like it's the 80s, right? So it ends up being this somewhat authentic slice of life, even though it's a ridiculous kind of B-movie comedy, you know? So I think that's part of the fascination of, you know, it becomes a time capsule, right? And I, and as I interviewed a lot of people for my book, I interviewed 30 different filmmakers, and one of the things that comes up is, you know, these artists are just shooting with their friends in their apartments with clothes that they have in their closet. And so it becomes this really um, kind of pure time capsule. It's not, it's not you know, the, the directors of Stranger Things going to art direct something to look like the 80s. I have no problem with that, by the way. But it's the authentic, you know, it's the real deal. Like, you're looking at what an artist's apartment looks like in 1987. Yeah. And there's something beautiful about limited resources where we get the, pu- we get the pure. And I, I like how you said the pure because it's just, there's, and that's, I mean, that's why I, I think I saw Skate Witches at a film festival. And then when I found it on YouTube, I was like, oh my God, it, YouTube's so much fun because I could find all these things I had to wait for that, you know, weird Sunday night screening at 4 p.m. so I can see it. But there was yeah. beauty in that as well because the weirdos gathered. The weird, the weirdos gathered and it, it meant so much. If you saw a film that you liked, like, I mean, for me, you know, I try to get a VHS copy so I could then go show my friend. So you didn't have to wait to 4 p.m. on the fourth Sunday of November for what, your one opportunity to see that. You could come over to my house and I could, you know, show it, show it to you. I mean, still not quite as easy as YouTube but you know there's something to be said for you know the way that whole tape collector market worked as well I remember well I remember getting uh, skate videos on VHS and then also um, in the back of Maximum Rock and Roll they used to have the video trades of uh, bootleg concerts and I would get those and have people over my place and we would watch the thing front to back and it was a gathering I don't think I, I don't have the attention span to watch anything from front to back anymore. No, I know. As soon as it's like a YouTube, you see something that's like four minutes. No way. I mean, right. And I joke, I think that's the other reason why I think Skate Witches has been successful on YouTube. It's under two minutes, right? I mean, I feel like I've made better films, but they don't have the traction because who's got 10 minutes? Who's got 10 minutes anymore? You know? Yeah. So if you were just, if you were to um, split up Skate Witches in three acts. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, well, it could be done. <laughs> when you're um, when you're filming and when you're you know, like with like with Skate Witches with your other films, 
Did you kind of come with a concept, or did you did you really map out the sh shots? How, how did how did you approach it? Oh yeah, I mean, all my stuff was um, meticulously scripted and storyboarded, but a, a lot of that had to do with just how expensive the film was. I mean, I was trying to do things in two to three takes max, like with a three to one shooting ratio, because that's all I could afford. I, I, you know, I always did multiple takes because there was always that fair, you do one take and something's wrong and then you don't have it and you're screwed. So I always at least try to walk away with, you know, two takes of something that I felt I could use, but I don't think I ever, you know, pushed it much beyond three unless, you know, it was a critical shot or a critical uh, scene. And I rehearsed all my films to death for the most part. Skate Witches, maybe not so much, but once you get to films like Dumbass from Dundas, we would rehearse those. And then that's where, um, you know, I'd come in with a very set script, but ultimately I was working with some really good actors, Ray Wilcox, Chris Enright, uh, my wife Allison, who I worked with a lot. They were all great and could bring a lot to it, but I'm like, all right, let's improv, but we're gonna do it in rehearsal. And from there, I would often rewrite the script. Oh, Ray's doing something great, or Chris is doing something great, or great turn of phrase. Uh, that's way better than what I wrote, but now, it's in the script and that's how it's going to be delivered on the set, you know, especially once you, once I started making, you know, longer films, six minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you know, that film stock wasn't cheap. So the cost at, you know, added up. So yeah. And people look at my films and they think it's all very improv and off the cuff, which I, I think is a good testament to the acting. I, I mean, I do, you know, I do think so. And the fact that we really kind of drilled things down. Skate Witches, we probably just showed up and I had them deliver the lines, but I, there was a script. Yeah. The, um, when, when were you doing the, uh, when were you picking up actors? Was that in San Francisco with the, kind of your acting, uh, who you would cast, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, again, I have those couple early films from Ann Arbor, like Skate Witches, which I did sort of have the same crew of people there but once I got to San Francisco uh, I, I met this guy Ray Wilcox we we ended up uh, we, we met we had a job together you know we moved out at the same time we had found out we had looked at all the same apartments when we were you know moving out here and then his buddy Chris moved out here from New Jersey and so all of a sudden I started working with the same crew of actors in each film and even the same kind of production crew as well Wait, um, and what was it what was it about San Francisco that brought you here from Ann Arbor you know, I, I'd, I, once I sort of graduated University of Michigan, I had a couple of films under my belt. You know, I knew I wanted to make films, and there really, there really wasn't much going on in the Detroit scene, you know, in terms of filmmaking. And so I felt I needed to move, and I was looking at New York and L.A. as sort of the logical places. And when I visited L.A., I, I came up to San Francisco for a weekend, I, you know, I, I had one friend who lived up here, and so I visited them, and I ended up getting a job as a PA um, uh, for an ad agency. And it was, it was this really odd moment where, like, I showed up for three days, I got a job, the city was beautiful. I never, like, I had no idea what San Francisco was at the time, you know? It was like, oh my God, this place is unbelievable. And I saw like flyers for all these like film shows and punk shows like on the light poles. And I'm like, I'm moving to that place. I mean, that was, you know, that was it. I, I was down in LA and I liked it, but I couldn't even figure out where I was supposed to live. Like, I mean, I don't even know where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do. And so, you know, I, I went back home to Detroit, kind of packed up the van and moved out here. And 
not a particularly well thought out decision, but you know, I've been here for, you know, 35 years or something like that. So it worked out. Definitely. Yeah. It's it's like Los Angeles kind of, when I first went down there uh, six years ago, kind of freaked me out how it just spread out and you really have to dig to find the stuff. Yeah. And to find the good stuff, and San, and I ne- never had that because I always was in San Francisco. Everything's in your face, yeah. and you have twenty things to do. Yeah. And you know what? That that Tim Bernal Heights. I'm going to stay in the Tenderloin tonight because we got five things here. Kind of. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. And right. And and you know, you think it's difficult six years move six years ago moving to LA when you have the internet and right. stuff like n- again 1985 like. Here's the place that's like roommate referral. What are all these neighborhoods? I don't understand yeah. what all these neighborhoods are, and they're all so spread out. And where where are people hanging out? You know. So and again, I didn't really know anyone out there. I mean, I really didn't know anyone here either. I am. Mean, I, I kind of knew one person who was just I think here for the summer. So it wasn't even like I knew anyone permanent. But you know, it's such a smaller town to navigate, and so much easier to figure out. What was um. How? What was your first like kind of feature? I think if I remember the Icky Boyfriends documentary was I, was that well, I don't remember the yeah. runtime on. Yeah, so I, I, it's a featurette. It's uh, forty nine minutes, but yeah, that was a much bigger undertaking film called "I'm Not Fascinating the Movie," which starred um, you know uh, No Fi Rockers, the Icky Boyfriends, a San Francisco staple, and those guys were were good friends of mine and you know in the i worked with jonathan swift who is a lead singer we worked this crazy job at a place called video monitoring service a job that would not exist anymore where basically we worked for a company that taped the news both video and audio tape and sold news stories to companies so like chevron was a big client so if there was an oil spill and chevron wanted to know what people in the news were saying they would call us and sell and say send us all the clips where people are talking about yeah. chevron now right so that was I that, that. I, I remember when i used to work at visa when i was a kid um they always the legal department had all the clippings of it was like the news service that they subscribed to and it was yeah. all the clippings of visa mentioned in the news that day yeah and that's what i did i would you know i would uh, record i record record and edit you know out you know clips from news shows and uh but at the time since i had access to multiple videotape decks i would dub all of my films there and send them around to people and then i met john he saw my tapes and you know asked to um you know borrow a tape and he became obsessed he would show them to you know all his friends i think they lived over on sycamore street and then i ended up with a little following of really obsessive fans out of the kind of icky boyfriends universe and john gave me uh you know the first icky boyfriends cassette oral damage which i loved you know and it's always it's always like when someone gives you a tape and you're like oh i hope i like this thing and i took it home and i was cracking up i loved it so much and for years uh you know we always talked about like doing a collaboration of some kind and i had i you know like an index file of like funny scenarios to put the icky boyfriends in and we never did anything about it until you know 96 i probably met john in 88 or 89 and in in 90 no in 1995 he moved to baltimore and i think i bumped into them in a bar in early summer and they're like john's moving to uh baltimore if we want to do something we got to do it and we're like all right you know let's do it and um and we somehow ended up making a 50-minute film. It got out of control. I think our plan was to do like a sort of a 22-minute like 
monkeys episode. I think that was the goal, and we started shooting, and uh, the film just kind of spiraled a little out of control. I'm going to say that's the one film where there is not a set script in place. That one, uh, yeah, that one, there was a lot of uh, extraneous action on set, you know, yeah. Oh, that's a lot of fun. Um, God, and just and that's San Francisco. You're documenting the San Francisco times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're seeing, you know, the old Mortem Records that's not there anymore. You're seeing Aquarius on 24th Street that's not there. Uh, yeah, you're just seeing sort of the streets of the mission, right? And so, I, you know, I haven't looked at that film uh, in a little bit, but that's, you know, that's definitely going to be a time capsule of a San Francisco that was certainly a lot easier to live in and maybe a little more run down in its way. Yeah, I mean, rent-wise, there was no... You could really live low-key back in those days. I mean, one of the reasons I moved to San Francisco was it was so cheap to live in. I tell my students that now they want to punch me. I mean, right, I remember, like, you know, one of the reasons I didn't move to New York is it seemed so expensive and I I didn't really have any sort of savings built up. And I'm like, I don't even know what kind of job I'm going to get. I don't know how I'm going to move there and, and make a go of it. And I think my first place in San Francisco, my rent was two fifty a month, and I could have gotten cheaper. But it was a huge place, and it was like in the lower hate, and it was like, oh, this is great. You know, you could work a cafe job and pay your rent, and you know, put some money in your pocket to save for art projects. And that, you know, and that allowed I think so many great artists at the time to live and work and flourish here. You know, no, I mean, I just remember. I was kind of watching it from the sidelines, going to see punk bands and doing what I could, you know, being a being in that uh, being in a weird religion where I was trying to tap into what was outside of um, that, and it was just so much fun because it's just it was fresh. I remember bottom of the hill barbecue Sunday shows. Oh just the, I, I, I love those. Those are great. Yeah, five dollars. I saw. I remember one of the last ones I saw was Rancid and the Merriman. Yeah, five bucks. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And hot dogs for a dollar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, when I worked at Film Arts Foundation, we would often go to lunch at Bottom of the Hill. We had our, like, 20 Tank Hotel Utah and Bottom of the Hill, which were just, like, bars that opened during the day. Yeah. And we'd go down there and, like, go have lunch and a beer there. Yeah. What, uh, when did Film Arts Foundation start? Were you a, were you a part of that? No. I mean, Film Arts started mid-'70s okay. out of... Um, you know, the, the desire for filmmakers to come together and share a flatbed. I mean, I think, it, you know, I think someone got a flatbed and decided, all right, people need to rent this, can't use it 24 hours. And so, you know, film arts came out of the, uh, you know, it's expensive to make films and filmmakers can't own all the gear on their own. So, yeah, so they, they were there since the mid-70s. And I kind of, when I moved to town in 87, um, they had open screen, so I would go show my work at open screen. So Skate Witches was, you know, you know, showed that at the open screen. I mean, the other great thing about Film Arts Foundation, which of course makes no sense from today's landscape, is right. If you wanted to submit your films to festivals, we had to find out about them. And so Film Arts, in the back of their release print magazine, had the listing of all the upcoming film festivals. But then you had to apply to a festival, which meant getting the application form. And so Film Arts housed all the application forms. So you would you would go to the office, you'd give them like a nickel or a dime for a copy. You know, they, they would make copies of all the application forms and you could uh, sit in their, um, 
in the front office there, they had an IBM Selectric typewriter and you could fill out, you know, your form if you didn't own your own typewriter. I own my own typewriter, but right, not, not everyone did, right? And so you could sit there at Film Arts and type in your form and then, you know, send off your application and your tape, right? I mean, but that's why everyone joined Film Arts because, because if you didn't have that, you'd have to send a self-addressed stamped envelope to every festival just to get the application form, right? There's just so many barriers in your way of getting stuff done then. Um, yeah, and then um, I started teaching classes there in 1990. The, the woman who ran the education program, Tracy Thompson's like, well, you know, we want to do a Super 8 class. You're the guy. Do you want to come in and teach it? And yeah, so that was like my first class was, you know, I was 25 years old or whatever at Film Arts teaching a Super 8 class. And uh, so was that your first experience teaching? Yeah. So what was, uh, was there some nerves involved on the first night or? You know, I, I don't remember. I, I, I bet not because I think I was pretty like, I was pretty cocky. And, and, what, and it was, here's the thing, it was like, we're just making films. I'm just going to show you how to use these cameras. And it wasn't this big involved, you're going to give me your script and I'm going to go over your script and all that advice. I'm making the assumption you're here because you have an idea and you just need to understand the technical interface, right? Because that was a thing back in the days, like even though Super 8 cameras are pretty easy and simple to use, there is some, you know, fine level detail you really need to understand to make a film that doesn't look like a piece of crap. And so I'm just there telling you how to do that. And that's easy for me, right? I've now been doing this long enough that I've made all the mistakes, right? I can, I can help you out by sharing all my mistakes that I've made. It's so much fun learning by mistakes. I mean, I, actually, it's hard as hell because, you know, of course, sometimes it takes me decades to learn from mistakes. Yeah. But, but, that, but then it's just going through the mistakes and then teaching and going, you don't have to do this because I did it. Well, and, you know, it's funny. And I, Skate, which is a film I'd always show because simultaneously, I think it's really beautiful. Like, it really showcases the colors of Kodachrome, one of just the most beloved film stocks. But there's so many mistakes in it as well because I didn't know what I was doing. There's just there's so many ridiculous mistakes that now... You know, now that I've transferred the film to like 2K, it's like, well, I could clean those up. But for the most part, I'm leaving them in just because, you know, it's an authentic bit of what that thing is. You know, I, I'm sure I'd clean something up and someone from the internet would yell at me, what happened to that blemish, you know? Well, I'm going to do, uh, there's this director, Tom DiCillo. He did a film called uh, Johnny Suede. And I'm going to, I'm interviewing him when I get back to LA. And I'm going to do that to him. He also, what he did, did he do um, Living in Oblivion? Yes. Yeah. He, uh, so what, what happened was on Netflix, uh, what they, with Johnny Suede, the original cut, Netflix bought it, and then they put in their own soundtrack. They didn't even bother to keep the Link Ray in there. And so he got in there and was like, had that pulled out. He's like, look, I'll, I know Link Ray. We'll get the rights. And then he decided to recut it. And it, it was, it just killed me. So I got on eBay right away to get a DVD because I'm like, I need the original cut. Anyway, I interviewed him years ago for that, but now I get to interview him for why this. But that's, that's, uh, yes, sometimes just don't do anything because there's so much of, part of it is the audience develops a relationship with it where it's, you can't get in the way of it almost. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting, again, I interviewed a lot of folks and 
I interviewed James McKay, who's Derek Jarman's producer, and uh, James Nairs as well, the No Way filmmaker. And and both them are in the process of you know re you know transferring those films to 4K. And you know, and with both with both of them, you know, we talked about right. Do you leave the film as it was, or do you restore it to the original intention? Right, you know, because right with Super 8, there's often an intention of how I want this to look and sound, but sometimes the technology got in the way and let you down. So you ended up with something that was a little less than what you hoped and dreamed of. Well, yes, now people have an attachment to the way it was, but you also have the ability to go, you know what, that's been bugging me for 30 years. I can go clean that up and get it to, you know, where I wanted it to get to right so that's an interesting um you know choice that you have to make when you're essentially remastering all of this stuff now and then with with that though i i feel like we have we grow older we we've consumed a lot more of our art we've worked on of our you know whatever we're working on um creatively for so long that we're different people so even if even if i re-edited something that i did 10 years ago and I did it now, 10 years from now, I'd be like, that dude was an idiot 10 years ago. It's gotta be re-edited. Yeah, yeah no, there's moments of like, what was I thinking? Why did I just get rid of these two shots and like make this film 20 seconds shorter? It seems so obvious now, but it's like, who are you, are you gonna go in and kind of make those changes? Like, maybe there was a good reason you had kept that in. You just can't remember anymore because you've forgotten. Yeah. What, did you ever, um, I mean, you know, did you ever get like kind of the idea of like, you know what, maybe I should up this game and go see if I can do uh, L.A. or New York. and You know, for me, n- uh, not not really. I mean, I think for me where I, you know, I up my game is, you know, jumping up to 16 to make a film like Swinger Serenade uh, or even the last couple sort of digital things I did, these couple music videos for this woman, Candace Roberts, which... And those, those, you know, films just operate, it's sort of such a higher level. So for me, jumping it up was just, you know, becoming a better filmmaker, making tighter stories, things that looked better, things that sounded better, that were more complex. And, you know, I think I always just, you know, I, I like living in San Francisco. I mean, I think that's just part of it. I like... I like the I like this place and the lifestyle here. I mean, that's obviously changed, but you know, and I managed to make a living, you know, first at film arts, then doing teaching gigs. Now I got a great gig at the University of San Francisco. I love teaching. It's really inspiring. I like working with young people. And so, I feel like I have a good thing going here these days, you know. Fingers crossed. I'm I feel really bad for asking the question that way because right after I asked it, I felt like a douche. Like, like, um, like. I mean, there there are moments where I feel like you know a lot uh, because a lot of my films were narrative based. There, you know, I was always in this sort of odd place where people like I came up through the the underground and experimental film world. I love all of those people. Though I felt a, a number of... T- I felt that sometimes the experimental film people didn't really love my work because it was very narrative-based. 
and very crass, right? I wasn't doing a Stan Brackage kind of thing. Um, and I just got to tell you, a lot, a lot of the references to people you make, I'm nodding my head. I have no idea okay. what you're talking about. Yeah. But it's fine. People can look it up. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Yeah, no, exactly. But, you know, um, and I, you know, I, I, there's part of me that thinks, oh, had I been in L.A. making these sort of more narrative-based comedy films, that right, perhaps certain avenues would have opened for me in a way that were not going to happen here, up here in San Francisco, where there isn't this big history or opportunity for narrative filmmakers. But I don't spend too much time worrying about that stuff because, you know, I loved every minute of being up here, you know. Oh, and it's such the perfect climate. I'm just, <laughs> I'm so excited to be here in December and. Just, oh yeah, when you, I mean, it rained all last week and right now it's sunny and cold and the air is fresh and clean. It's really nice this week. The, um, where was I going after that? Film Arts Foundation really changed my life a lot because that's where I took some of my first classes on writing. Yeah. So my first writing classes were there, t- taking screenwriting. Remember it with um, the Desert Hearts woman? Uh, I would, um, Michael Faye Dugan taught my oh, class. Michael Dugan, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it, th- that was in my early days of even showing people my work. Mm-hmm. And we had table reads uh, with our scripts, and we had to cast the table reads. And um, at the end of class, he pulled me out, and he said one of the things that made me a writer today, just kept me pushing. He said, you know what? You are fucking talented, and you don't know what the hell you're doing in scene, and you still can get the whole room to laugh. So you need to do this stuff, but still, but dig in, because you got to yeah. dig in now. And that advice push me forward that's great and I I, you know I didn't realize that um, right because your book is so awesome I love your book so much but I love the notion that you started a screenwriting class that's exciting I don't think I'd put those together yeah nobody would really put that together but that's kind of the I I didn't take a writing class I was in there I I think I did John Moritzuku's no budget filmmaking yeah yeah, 100% John oh he's living the dream yeah. Oh man, and I just I let he did that one. Oh, maybe it was 15 years ago where he used I think it was just two, he edited on two Betamaxes yeah. and that was, and he's he loved limiting himself and it was just so beautiful to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in a couple of John's movies. I am. Yeah, I'm proud. They're on my IMDb page. My films aren't, but somehow my inclusion in John's are. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's weird. What what movies of John's were you in? I'm in Scumrock and Fame Horror. Oh, okay. I play an acting coach in Fame Horror. Yeah. Um, and then I play like a, um, in Scumrock. My performance in Scumrock was really good. I remember just doing like one take and everyone was like, oh, that's great. I, I was um, like, they, they're at like the university like speaker series. I'm the guy who heads up all the volunteers, you know, who are the ushers and stuff. I'm an authority figure essentially. Wait, was Fame Whore the one that was uh, at, shot at the uh, at a at a movie theater? The whole, no, was that his? No. no. Okay, You're I'm thinking Mary Jane's not a virgin. Yes. Sarah Jacobson. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Which has been re-released by Agfa on DVD this year. Really? Yeah. All those old times going to the. I remember when Fame Whore came out because I saw the f- yeah. film, and that was after I think Mod Fuck Explosion. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's the one after Mod Fuck, I think. Well, Terminal USA then then Fame Whore. I think something like that. But the reason I, I the, that's the reason I took his class because I was such a fan of his and he felt so untouchable to me when I was a kid. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I'm like, oh my god, I've seen this guy's movies. 
wait, I could just show up and take a class and yeah. be near him? Yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. One, well, I mean, it's so exciting that you're, you know, you're mentioning all this because I was a director of education, so I hired John to teach, I hired Michael to teach, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. so, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was such a great job. I just got to like, and, and you know, that was a thing. Like, film arts hired me to teach. Who, like, who the fuck was I? Like, I was just some 25-year-old kid, but like, I was the right person for the job. And the same thing, like, John was in town. I'm like, you're the best feature filmmaker going in town. You should just come and do, you know, what you want. Like, what are you doing? We're going to make no-budget films. I'm going to tell people how to just do it. And his class, I remember his classes were packed. Yeah. We were in the big room, and it was, it yeah. was packed. Yeah. No, people turned out. Like, that was such a great, it was such a great gig. Yeah. And such a beautiful time. I just felt like San Francisco was just vibrating at that time because it was just so nice. I did that. I was taking improv acting classes at Bay Area Theater Sports, just trying to find my way as a bubbling kid going, I think I'm creative. What do I do? Yeah, well, and I mean, I think that was the beauty of that time here because it wasn't ex- too expensive to live. You could figure it out. You could kind of take your time to figure it out. And making ends meet just wasn't that difficult. So, and that's what a lot of times people need. They don't, you know, again, I teach college and I've got some great students who are driven to know exactly what they want to do. And you've got other students and you can tell that they're sharp, but they just haven't exactly figured out how they want to plug in yet. And, you know, now it's like you graduate from college. How much money do you have to make? out of college to live here eighty, ninety thousand dollars I mean you know it's like and what college kids just gonna get that straight out the gate you know so it's 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 a tricky it's a tricky time here do you, do you see because uh, you have a good vantage point uh, working with college kids and then seeing where they go do you see them if they if they're from San Francisco kind of migrating to other cities like Sacramento Reno or uh, is that the case or no? You know, I'm not seeing that so much. I, I, you know, a lot of our kids, kind of New York and L.A., you know, if they're interested in arts or the media arts, kind of that's where they're going. I'm not getting a sense that they're going to those smaller places. Though, you know, like at USF, we don't have a lot of students from San Francisco. We've got students from San Jose and Sacramento and Fremont, Modesto. And so I don't know that they're itching to run back to those places, right? They've just come to a bigger city. So I think they want to, you know, broaden their horizons a little bit. And a lot of them are trying to stick it out here, you know. I mean, you know, growing up in Millbrae, which is only about 10 minutes south of here. But I, I just, it, it almost, I just felt like ashamed growing up in Millbrae. I just wanted to be in San Francisco so bad because that was the place to be. I would never live in Millbrae in my life because I can live in San Francisco now. There was just something about being here. Yeah, no, I, well, my wife's from down the peninsula as well. And, she, you know, in high school, she was coming up here to go to the Mab or the On Broadway and to come check out all those punk rock shows every weekend here, you know, same as you, you know. And the old comedy scene too, all the old comedy that used to happen. Oh yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah, all that the comedy scene here. I feel like that yeah, that predates me just a little bit, but yeah, that very classic San Francisco comedy scene. I mean, it's big names out of here. So much fun. What's what? Um, so, how long have you been at University of San Francisco? I started adjunct in 2010, and then went full time in 2013. So a little bit now. Gotta be fun. Like, now you, I mean, I, this is me being totally ignorant. So, like, do you have your own office there, and you're, you have office hours? I have my own office and my own office hours. I know. I mean, my I, 
office, my office is essentially just overflow for all the junk that I can't fit in my house anymore. <laughs> I know, all, all my broken Super 8 cameras are on display there. I finally have a place to display them, you know. Yeah. How, how did you end up meeting? Did you meet, did you and Allison, were you together when you started working together? Or were, was she just in your films and you started... Uh now that I get to the relationship questions, yeah. on, here on Oprah this week, we talk about Danny and... Well, actually, we, we met on um, Seal Rock, when you could walk out to Seal Rock out at Land's End, you know, out of the Sutro Baths. You used to be able to walk out onto this sort of rock abutment just out in the ocean. You can't do it anymore. The little retaining wall that you could walk across, I think, has just been beaten down by the sea but so very romantic we met out in this very romantic spot out on the ocean um and she i was with my buddy ray who's in my films and he was in a band with her and so that's where alice and i met didn't start going out probably for like another year i think uh before that uh went down um and then yeah after that she worked her way into my uh film ensemble okay. yeah yeah so, so you were romantic when she was in your film ensemble? We asked the hard yeah, questions yeah, no, here. No, I think she's... Is she, is she in Dumbass from Dundas? No, she doesn't have a prime role in that, so no. So I think it was after we started going out that she made her way in. Uh, but yeah, no, she's great. I mean, she's scored a bunch of my movies, and yeah, I mean, she... she she stars. She's got some starring roles in Steel Belted and Swinger Serenade, and yeah, we made our sock monkey movie Isaki together. Yeah, so yeah, so much fun. Um, and then it's just, uh, and she works at a bookstore now. She's or she's part of the right still or no? Oh, no, she. Yeah, she. She totally pivoted. She's. Um, running all this sort of taught the young kid programming at a Jewish temple on the peninsula. So she she was doing music for years and years and was in a, a really big kids band called the Sippy Cups that were doing super big national uh, shows and then kind of was doing that solo and ended up doing a lot of teaching in, in uh, different Jewish organizations and temples. And so she now is kind of running the programming over in that universe, yeah. Yeah. With, with uh, did you say with like toddlers or kids or, yeah. wow, wow, wow. Yeah. It's gotta be fun. Yeah, and she just is finishing up her master's, so she went back and got her master's in Jewish education that she's writing her thesis now, so, you know. What's her thesis on? Um, it's, it's about art, it's about um, art education, how art gets worked into education programs for young kids, yeah, so, yeah. Just it, it's so funny because it's about keeping the creative juices. I, I it's 100% about that, and just figuring out how to instill that creative energy with young kids, right? You know, how can you get them invested, in, and how can that um, be a learning tool, and just getting them to engage with the world in all these different ways? Yeah, through art. Yeah. I, I, well, I was at a party, and um, and a few people, few people were getting really stoned and drinking a lot. And they were telling these just like elaborate stories and they were just so into it. And I'm just like, you have, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, this is just playtime. And you just have to, you have to uh, get drunk and stoned in order to do this. When we should be able to just do this without getting drunk and stoned and yeah. just, be, just be stupid and have fun. Yeah. Like but we lose it. We lose yeah. it. 
yeah, it's just that play group mentality that kids have. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I just, I think it's so great to just let the kids keep creating and playing instead of shooting all the math at them and all that stuff. Just, just yeah. let, go let them go beat each other up at recess, yeah. figure out how to uh, come back together. Yeah. That's what they're gonna do when they get the law firm job twenty years from now, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're agreeing with everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, all right. Where are we at? We've done. Where, we've covered Super Eight. We covered. We covered. Uh, now, did you? Oh, did you ever see Allison's? You never saw Allison's bands before you guys got together. Is that the case? No, I'd seen her bands before we got together. Did you? You knew who she was then. Yeah, yeah. So again, my buddy Ray, the the first job I got out here, we were working together. He was in a band with her, so I saw them a whole bunch. And their band actually the um, the credit music for Dumbass from Dundas is her band. Yeah. So I think you she, she sings on that. So you actually her voice is in in the film definitely. I saw one of your films once, and you were you were at the screening, and it was at this I can't remember the name of the place, but it was this. Uh, it was on, I think it was on Bayshore, and it was kind of like a really cool speakeasy spot where you had to like, if you wanted to buy a drink, you had to go back to the front door and get a ticket and then come back around. And it was, and, oh, and somebody shot a film there. I love, I love. Oh, the wear pad? The wear pad. Oh my God, yeah, that is Jacques Boyrou's place, the wear pad. Jacques and uh, Scott, oh, I forget Scott's name. Oh my God, that was like, you know, the dream 60s mod underground lounge and they had i think they had a 35 projector in there and and they and jacques and scott collected all these just crazy 60s b movies and they would you know every weekend they'd show a couple and there was just this weird, this weird ass party there yeah the weird pads what a place <laughs> i was like digging into my san francisco memories there yeah, it was out on Third Street, like third and third and like twenty second or twentieth out there. Yeah. Back in the days when no one would bug you there, now everyone's got you know condos. And- That's a new city over there. Is it? It's yeah, have you not been down there? Oh, you should you should go down. It's there is a whole city that has sprung up down there. Well, that's now all where like you know the new Warriors Stadium is down there, but in those uh, you see. UC, uh, you know, UCSF has a whole medical complex down there. Kaiser has a whole complex down there. But that whole Third Street corridor, it's wild. It's, I just went biking down there the other day just to check out the Warriors' new place. But it's just a city down there that did not exist 20 years ago. And, you know, impressively, it's like, oh, there was all this space for more housing down here. And it, it is there now, you know. I was, t- I was talking to someone about how I used to take the train up to San Francisco and then uh, to see bands and try to hitch a ride back from the other suburban kids that w- just happened yeah, yeah. to be there. But, um, but walking from the train station at Townsend through Soma and just how desolate nothing there was there. It was- yeah. It's all so built up now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just a different landscape, which is... I mean, it is what it is, but it's kind of wild. Like, yeah, I went down to the um, the Salesforce has a park above the the terminal, and I mean, I, like, I was just walking around that park, looking at the skyline, and 
It's like, what are all these buildings? It's like, yeah, the Salesforce building, the Millennium Tower, those are big buildings. But there were then these all these other buildings. Like, when did that go up? Where is this? And just looking at like different corners where I used to work downtown at the, vi the video monitoring service. It's like, I'm looking right at the building I used to work at, completely surrounded by just all this new stuff. And it's just, it's just a weird, it's like being in a Philip K. Dick novel in a way. It's like, what happened? There's some weird like, you know, woo, kind of time shield force going on. That's like, you know, you're pivoting back and forth in time, trying to figure out where you are. Do you, um, do you do you still uh, like? Are you, I don't know if you're still working on films, or do you do, do you kind of have projects going, or is it? Yeah, I mean the answer is yeah. I mean the book has just sort of taken over the last three or four years. So right now I'm not working on any films, but you know again three or four years ago I worked on a couple projects with my friend Candace. These kind of bigger pieces that were a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, do, do you like continue to like? journal and keep like ideas going just in case you want to hit them later yeah i got i got a couple little ideas for some shorts that i think would be a lot of fun that maybe i'll end up doing with my students you know i mean one of the things is like making films it's like difficult right even with all the new equipment it, it just takes a certain kind of energy especially if you want to do them at a certain level and right now my energy has been more like i'm gonna hole up in my basement and like write and talk to people that's very easy, you know, in a way, you know, so, um, but yeah, I still do some shooting. I'll shoot for Hardly Strictly Blue Bluegrass and I'll shoot for SF Sketchfest. So I'll do some video documentation for those folks. Yeah. Very cool. Danny, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Yeah, this has been a blast, Tony. So much fun. All right. Danny Plotnick on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Super 8, an illustrated history released yesterday on Rare Bird Books. Next week on the show, we have John Martin Fisher. He's the author of Death, Immortality, and the Meaning of Life. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next Wednesday.